Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My name is Zach Twomley, and you are listening to the final part of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. It's been a long journey, guys. This is the 12th of 12 episodes, and in the six hours or so of content I've provided, we've seen a lot of characters, stories, and dreams, and failures, and victories, all wrapped up into one incredible war, so I hope you've been enjoying it. And I hope that it's prepared you for what's to come with When Diplomacy Fails, because let's just say we're not leaving this era anytime soon. Anyway, so the big news this week, last week I made a kind of cryptic announcement that something big was coming down the line, and if you're paying attention at all to social media for When Diplomacy Fails on Facebook or that kind of thing, you'll have seen my wonderful video, which took far too long to record and then upload. You'll see that, well, we finally have t-shirts. I actually can't believe we finally have t-shirts. If I wasn't wearing one right now while I was recording this, I still wouldn't believe it. I mean, how long have I been promising t-shirts to you guys? I think since like the second episode. But here we are, we finally have them. You can choose between either a simple one with my logo that I must say looks very, very nice. If you want to know exactly what it would look like, you could look at the t-shirt online, of course. But if you were to look at the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page right now with basically our profile picture, it's that logo that's on the t-shirt. But it's no secret, you can simply go to historytees.net or follow the links from my recent post in order to find that t-shirt. And the other t-shirt, of course, which is a picture of Bismarck, because what else do you want in your life? And within that t-shirt, there is the phrase, always be yourself, unless you can be Bismarck, then always be Bismarck. Words to live by, I think, but more than that, words to wear. So, if you're interested at all in buying either of these t-shirts, or both, or three, because then you get free shipping to anywhere in the world, you should check out historytees.net. That, again, is historytees.net. Scroll down to the sidebar, click on podcasts, and there I will be. Remember to use the promo code WDF16, all uppercase, to get 10% off. So, thanks again, guys. I can assure you this is not the last time I'll be shoving t-shirts down your throat, but who knows, in the future maybe we'll get some competitions going and there might even be some free t-shirts going around. I can't think of a better prize than a free t-shirt. Perhaps a book, perhaps both. Who knows, the possibilities are endless, but stay tuned and please buy the t-shirts. 
Anyway, the final thing I have to say, sorry it's a bit crowded before we start the actual episode, but these things need to be said. I suppose the bad news is we're going to be taking a hiatus from our regular programming for about three weeks. Well, mostly because it's my birthday and I want a bit of a rest. Can't believe I'm 25. That fact in itself means that I need to sit down and take a step back. But also, I've got a few things that I want to share with you guys that will fill up the gap. So it won't be like you won't hear from me for three whole weeks. Don't worry. I'm going to try and sort out a talk episode with Sean and I to try and like consolidate all that we've heard here in these 12 episodes. Because... Let's face it, we've been through a lot and there's a lot to get through and all that kind of thing. So I think a talk episode would really, really do a good job with that. Also, you should know, Sean's been learning Dutch. So, yes, you'll be subjected to that. There's another few things that you might be given instead of a normal episode in that gap. But I'll fill you in on the details when I know more. Let's just say you won't be in the dark. So, I think we're finally ready to get into it. Sorry for all these updates and all this news and all this annoying housekeeping, but I am a real person and sometimes things actually happen to me. Hashtag buy the t-shirts. No, don't say hashtag. Just buy the t-shirts, okay? Let's start the episode. Thanks very much for listening. Welcome to WDF 28.95, episode 12 of the Second Anglo-Dutch War and the final act in our Second Anglo-Dutch War. Last time we saw how the opening acts of 1666 were mainly confined to peace overtures and intrigues designed to upset the domestic state of one's rivals. This diplomatic policy was shattered by the Dutch decisive victory in early June 1666, deemed the Four Days Battle whereupon the Dutch gained naval superiority and the British were forced to withdraw. In this episode we see the final stages of the drama play out, as both sides once again seek the decisive engagement which would knock the enemy out of the war and onto the bargaining table. In such circumstances, only the bravest, craziest and most ambitious plans of all could have the desired effect. So let's see what went down. I will now take you to Midsummer, 1666. And the truth is, I do fear so much that the whole kingdom is undone. So God help us, and God knows what disorders we may fall into. Though, God knows I have in my own person done my full duty, I am sure. Samuel Pepys writing in his diary on the Dutch raid on the Medway, the 22nd of June, 1667.
When the Dutch victory in the Four Days Battle occurred, Johan de Witt lobbied Admiral Michel de Rutier heavily for an even more ambitious follow-up campaign. De Rutier must go forth, the Dutch Grand Pensionary insisted, and launch an invasion of the British Isles, beginning at the mouth of the Thames, whereupon London would be directly threatened by a force of marines, and the pride of the British fleet would be caught napping at anchor at the Chatham dockyards. While they possessed the initiative, it was imperative that the Dutch stick it to the British and forcibly end the war on a high note. The enemy, in other words, had been routed from the field, and now remained to send the cavalry after them to eliminate the threats they posed before a regroup was made and a counter-attack launched. Unfortunately for De Witt though, this ask was too great. De Rutscher did not possess the resources necessary, he believed, for such a risky venture, though he recognised its value. The veteran admiral tried to console his master by assuring him that he would blockade the Thames instead, but De Witt would have to do his best to hide his disappointment. If the killing blow was not landed soon, the recent victory would be for naught. Echoing this view, on the 27th of June 1666, our friend Samuel Pepys was writing that The issue of all, standing upon this one point, that by the next fight, if we beat, the Dutch will certainly be content to take eggs for their money, or if we are beaten, we must be contented to make peace, and glad if we can have it without paying too dear a price for it, and with all, we do rely wholly on the Parliament's giving us money the next sitting, or else we are undone. Money dominated the writings of Pepys almost as much as the plague, pretty ladies going to theatre or getting drunk. Somehow there was enough money to repair the fleet after the four days fight, to the extent that the next day Pepys was able to note that The Dutch are known to be out, and we may expect them every hour upon our coast, but our fleet is in pretty good readiness for them. It had taken less than a month for the damaged ships to be repaired and made battle-ready, which meant a British counter-attack was in the offing. Dewitt was soon sent the same urgings of caution by Louis XIV, as the French king had sent to Charles after the victory at Lowestoft the year before. But Dewitt wasn't thinking cautiously. He couldn't afford to. Though Dewitt's worst fears were fulfilled when a refreshed British fleet sallied forth on the 3rd of August 1666, and this time turned the tables on the Dutch, defeating them in a strategic victory. Losses were negligible for both sides in this event, with the Dutch losing two ships captured and Britain having one ship sunk, but the impact was immediate. On the 3rd of August, Pepys was able to note that All the town is full of victory. But the real story was in the Netherlands, where de Rutscher profusely blamed his second, Tromp, for leaving the main force behind while pursuing the British rear to the west. So total was the verbal attack upon de Rutscher's second-in-command, Tromp, that de Rutscher later had to apologise, but tempers have been flared in other sections of the state too. Determined to demote the unpredictable Orangist sympathiser Tromp and get him away from a command that could damage their security in the future, the regents put him on trial and tried to strip him of his command. As the Orangists at home rallied to Tromp's side, it seemed as though another crisis was on DeWitt's lap yet again. Just as efforts were being made to arrive at a solution, DeWitt received a tip-off that the resurgent British were planning an attack on the resting Dutch fleet at the island of Terschelling, 
one of the outer islands that protects the inner Dutch mainland. De Witt ordered the fleet, which was protecting merchant vessels in excess of 200 ships, be moved on, but bad storms, low morale and intransigence across the board resulted in nothing being done. Two days after this intel was received, the British attacked, burning 140 merchant vessels bound for Russia, in addition to the small village on the island of Terschelling itself. Outraged, De Witt approved the dismissal of Trump while the British basked in the glory of another victory. They had been able to traverse the treacherous shoals through the employment of a Dutch turncoat, and this victory on the 20th of August, named Holmes's Bonfire after the commanding British Vice Admiral, hammered home the point to De Witt that another resounding victory, even more serious than the last, was desperately needed. It wasn't as though De Witt had planned small. He had hoped immediately after the victory in the Four Days Battle to launch a full-scale invasion of Britain by landing somewhere in the mouth of the Thames, as we saw, since he had been told that a great number of malcontents within Britain would rally to the Dutch side. The limited Dutch blockade that followed the Four Days Battle wasn't the result De Witt had wanted, but it had been the best De Rutscher could do under the circumstances. Though it did lower morale in London, it also motivated the Royal Navy to sail back out as fast as it could, with the result being a loss in early August and an even worse disaster on the 20th, as we saw. Faced with such depressions, factions within the Netherlands had begun to make their voices of disapproval even louder. De Witt had some reason to be positive, though. A very real victory against the pro-British conspirators, which led to the arrest of a leading Orangist agent in August 1666 and his execution in the following October, meant that a revival in Dutch nationalism began. Opposed to any semblance of foreign interference, and suspicious of the Orangist party for their clear intrigues in trying to force the Dutch to make a harsh peace with Britain. De Witt could have tried to capitalise on this notable victory against the enemy faction in the Republic at home by purging other Orangist elements and arresting other named conspirators, but the naked fact was that he couldn't afford to. So deep did the influence of the Orangist party run that it was better to select this key conspirator whose name I've been avoiding because it's so freaking long, as a scapegoat, then to punish all the others and perhaps unravel the very fabric of the state, leading to a civil war between regents and orangists. This conspirator, Henri de Fleury de Coulon, Seigneur de Butte, who we'll call Butte, was perhaps the one individual most responsible for moulding and crafting the peace proposals that were viewed as so harsh with Britain. Slight capitulations and overtures were also made in the name of the Orangist party to Charles II's court. Over the first year of the war, Butte had proved an immense headache for De Witt, since he leaked out sensitive Dutch information and coordinated Orangist schemes. De Witt only caught him after Butte somehow managed to accidentally mix up letters to co-conspirators in Britain with the usual raft of letters he would receive from Britain as a deputy of the Dutch States General. When Butte went to claim his suspect letters back, after leaving all of them in the hands of De Witt, of all people, De Witt informed him that he was under arrest. This went down just after the Holmes bonfire incident of the 20th of August, whereupon De Witt was in no mood to play nice, especially with a man he viewed as such a traitor. 
Thus severed from his network of Orangists in London and the Netherlands and with their reputations blackened, the Orange Party seemed much reduced in power by autumn, and at least DeWitt could take solace in that fact. There was further good domestic news over the spring of 1666, involving the Prince of Orange, perhaps the biggest threat to DeWitt's regime. Try as he might, DeWitt could not ignore the urgings of his peers forever, where the welcoming of William of Orange back home was concerned. Rather than allow the offences felt by the Orange Party to fester and boil, he thought it a better policy to agree to some requests, thereby satiating their desires and hopefully pacifying any Orangist ambitions in the process. William of Orange was an awkward character, not because of his dislike for social situations, but because of the nature of his upbringing. He was Dutch, yet he had been effectively raised by a conglomerate of different relatives since his mother's death in 1660. Now that Britain and the Netherlands were at war, the potential heir to the Orange House was receiving his education, having his younger years shaped by his life experience, in the court of the Dutch enemy, Britain. Yet at the same time it would have been problematic to simply whisk the boy back to The Hague and use him for his own political ends. Not only was William of Orange too wily for that, not to mention his well-connected relatives, but any appearance of the teenage Prince of Orange in The Hague, or partaking in matters of state, could provoke an upsurge of passions for the boy's heritage and family, which DeWitt wouldn't be able to overcome. He had to ensure, in other words, that the Orange Party and Dutch citizens would be drip-fed their Prince of Orange, rather than be able to feast on him, and DeWitt had his hand determinedly on the ivy bag. Strange metaphors aside, DeWitt did achieve a victory against the teenage William and his supporters, following the rejection of an earlier plan in late 1665 to have Marshal Turenne of France appointed Captain General, and for Prince William to be under Louis's tutelage. Louis had thought it too risky back then, if you'll remember from the last episode, and didn't want to give up his fave general either, but DeWitt now seemed to have arrived at an even better solution to his problems. On the 4th of March 1666, DeWitt had written and received agreement from the States of Holland for a measure which would detach William of Orange from all correspondence, inclination, and affection with and towards the present enemies of the state, and therefore also from the education and daily conversation of English and pro-English women and men. As long as this has not been effected, DeWitt's measure continued, during the present war, all promotion of the aforementioned Prince of Orange would cause suspicion to the Allies and be contrary to the security and service of this country. What DeWitt was thus proposing was a doubly powerful idea. Not only would William be removed from anti-Dutch, read, anti-Regent circles such as those of Charles II's court, he would also be held back from any promotions to any significant commands, even to that of Cavalry General, which he had been offered the previous year, at least until the war had ended. How had DeWitt managed to traverse the opposition he would face in Holland's regional assembly? Simply put, he had sensed which way the winds were blowing to an incredibly perceptive degree. The month before, in February 1666, a high-profile Orangist plot had been discovered, and then criticised, in Holland's assembly for endangering national security and self-respect, qualities do it appeal to again in this measure. 
The control over the young Prince of Orange's upbringing had been the source of Anglo-Dutch tension in the past, and De Witt here was actually repeating a settlement he had reached in 1661. Only this time the prince was that much older, and guarding against his ambitions was seen as that much more valuable. De Witt couldn't stop William growing up. He couldn't even stop him visiting Rotterdam or The Hague and greeting his supporters there. But now he had a provincial assurance that no efforts would be made to promote the young man, and that was a considerable message to send to the other provinces. Yet, De Witt accepted at the same time that The strong pressure for the restoration of the Prince of Orange has already found a loud echo in the very body of Holland, and thus pressed ahead with the other aspect of his plan, making official the plan to incept William of Orange as a child of state. De Witt's victory was made all the more impressive, because Louise, Henrietta of Nassau, William of Orange's aunt and Princess Dowager to the great elector of Brandenburg-Prussia, was also someone who agreed to the scheme. Because Louise Henrietta had been one of those tasked with William's upbringing as a remaining guardian, her approval was like an orange stamp of appreciation for De Witt's views, and a victory he could wave in the face of his rivals at home and abroad. William would be brought to Holland and brought up as De Witt saw fit, under his conditions, and the feared Orangist Revolution would be prevented. De Witt capitalised on the victory by naming William a child of state. A worthy servant and instrument of great hope for this state, and no longer a key ingredient in any conspiracies against the regent regime. Though William of Orange would now be home and could build his influence, De Witt had effectively disarmed his Orange. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Just rivals in their quest to secretly find a way to bring William of Orange home, and then give him a position of renown in Holland. Now that De Witt had acted first, he preempted any Orangist conspiracies in the name of national security, and took the conspiratorial danger of that party and its potential to collude with Britain down a few pegs. Though a domestic victory was in the offing, De Witt couldn't ignore the plight of his countrymen. Not just his countrymen, but also the foreign merchant, because that winter an English merchant from Rotterdam sent the following report back home to London. 
War is chargeable work, and this year all inhabitants must pay the hundredth penny, or 1% of their estates, besides other taxes, which are infinite and is deadly burdensome, and like to be more, whilst the war continues, and this without any trade. Considerable, so it saddens men's minds beyond expression. The longer this war continues, the more His Majesty will have his will of this country. While most of us would kill for a 1% tax ban nowadays, the war weariness from the foreign trader is palpable here. We could take it with a pinch of salt, considering the merchant's nationality and his comments on Charles II having the will of the Dutch, but the actions taken by De Witt after late August 1666 demonstrate that he wasn't blind to the facts on the ground. The Dutch had by no means lost the war, but they were far from winning it either. For every resilient stand or strategic victory they achieved, the following season always seemed to bring more reverses. Peace negotiations had begun, with Sweden as mediator, and persuading British negotiators to drop the long-standing prerequisite of having the Prince of Orange forcibly installed as stadtholder. With no threat to the regent regime, thanks to both the arrest of Bute, as we saw earlier on, and his own aforementioned manoeuvres against the Orangist party, would De Witt find the peace overtures with Britain more palatable? The States General remained intransigent on their diplomatic stance from the previous December, when it was declared that not only would the Dutch not make a separate peace without France, but the Dutch would only settle for a treaty which granted both the parties what they had conquered during wartime. Charles, for his part, couldn't settle, though, because his reputation and the satisfaction of his subjects, who were also more than weary of the war, were on the line. If he was seen to give up now, Charles's critics would argue that he let the Dutch away with it, so he sought to get the best bargain that he could, instructing his ambassadors to debate the minutiae of details and ensure that they got the best deals. Charles's Dutch focus was briefly interrupted by a fiery interval in September 1666, when the Great Fire of London ripped through the capital and caused millions of pounds worth of damage, flattened homes, and created a refugee community on the outskirts of London that now demanded attention. Critics were full of apocalyptic ideas of what the fire would mean. The Dutch pamphleteers argued that it was divine retribution for the Holmes's bonfire of the previous August, but it was more likely the result of tightly packed wooden buildings and no rain for many weeks. Singed by the traumatic experiences of the fire and the plague, Charles was now definitively weary of the war with the Dutch, Danes and French, but refused to agree to terms which would stain his reputation. In this atmosphere, as negotiations dragged on, De Witt accepted that a final push was needed to improve the Dutch negotiating position and force a peace on Britain. He began consulting with Admiral de Rutier to put in motion the ambitious invasion plan that had been abandoned in the previous June. With peace overtures in full swing, historians have since denoted the incredible fact that, while the Dutch began 1667 with plans to refit and send out its fleet, the British acted as though peace was already at hand. A lot of this inactivity and decommissioning of sailors was down to the chronic shortage of pay owed to the men manning the ships, who by mid-1666 were mostly forced to serve by press gangs and deserted whenever possible. Over £1 million in back pay, administrative costs and expenses was owed to the Navy by late 1666, and Charles's court, through a combination of expecting peace any day now and 
not being able to afford to send out a new fleet for the new year, had begun to slacken their defences. British diplomats had even softened in their demands, and now claimed that the Dutch demands of December 1665 could serve as the basis for negotiations. It was in this atmosphere that De Witt argued for the most daring and infamous attack of the whole war. The chronic shortage of money in Britain had, by February 1667, forced Samuel Pepys to ride with my sword drawn in the coach. Any naval administrators or VIPs were regularly cornered by outraged sailors and seamen desperate for their arrears and pay, but none was forthcoming, and the lengths Pepys had to go to to avoid being attacked by them make up much of his diary entries for the early part of 1667, as well as regular laments over the financial shortages experienced not just by Parliament, but also by the King. The country, quite simply, was running out of money, and so limp had the British ability to fight become, that an unintended consequence had arisen, which shocked De Witt even more into rapid action. Louis XIV of France was said to at last be on the move against the Spanish Netherlands in the spring. It was a measure of the low estimation in which he held the British military capabilities by early 1667 that the French king believed he could provoke a war with Spain while already being at war with Britain. But his intended actions would have grave consequences for Europe if the business of the Anglo-Dutch war couldn't be solved in time. De Witt now moved to knock out the British, not just in the name of victory, but also so that he could turn his attentions directly against his nominal ally. The Dutch ships, in De Witt's mind, couldn't sail fast enough. In early June 1667, over 18,000 Dutch sailors and 60 ships, accompanied by nearly 2,000 marines, set sail for what was hoped to be the final act of the war. When they arrived at the mouth of the Thames, panic began to spread almost as fast as the London fire, as Charles and his court came to realise how ill-equipped they were to deal with another threat so close to home. It wasn't just that the ships were unprepared, but the very men meant to man them had had long since left, assured that no money was to be paid for them, either for their old services tendered or for any new time they would give to the Royal Navy. Hasty actions meant to slow the Dutch down were thus put in place, rather than a coherent strategy. Militias were raised in the Kentish countryside, and merchant vessels were commandeered where available, but the large, hulking warships mostly sat unmanned in the shoals that had been chosen to protect them in a kind of natural barrier. English actions, like placing a chain across the harbour at Chatham, or sinking ships to block the Dutch advance, made little difference. The chain was easily snapped, which struck me in the heart, in Pepys's words, and the hastily sank boats weren't coherently organised to provide a proper foil to Dutch plans. Under the masterly command of Admiral de Rutier once again, small squadrons of marines also broke off to land and capture key batteries and fortresses so that the Dutch fleet could sail up the narrow channel unopposed. So effective was their advance that Sheerness, the supposedly impregnable naval fortress, was captured on only the second day of action, on the 20th of June. It had been almost entirely unmanned. 
Only by consulting a map of the Dutch advance can we really grasp how ambitious and daring the Dutch plan was. Through the narrowest of channels and facing the most hazardous of risks, did the advance continue, stopping when it reached the Chatham dockyards, where some of the largest vessels rested lazily on the gentle waves. Where once these warships had been terrifying spectacles, now they were easy targets. The Royal Charles, flagship of the British fleet, was towed away by the Dutch, while almost 30 larger ships were ordered sunk by General Monk, who believed that unless he did so, the Dutch would capture them and tow them away too. Amongst the Royal Charles, the Royal James, the Oak and Loyal London were set alight and sunk by Dutch fireships. These British heavyweights resembled the cream of the British fleet, and with them at the bottom of the sea and the Royal flagship now in Dutch hands, the heart of the Royal Navy had been torn out. De Witt would later argue that de Rutger could have gone further, but the stunned admiral likely didn't want to try his luck any further. He couldn't believe how easy it had been. How would England not laid better defences in its primary naval production centre? How would word not got out of the Dutch intentions? How had nobody in London thought to listen? A series of factors came together during the infamous Raid on the Medway in mid-June 1667, as it was called. They spelled disaster and humiliation for Charles's regime, whose agents immediately pressed, not for retribution, as some in Holland feared, but for a hasty peace. It was time, after such a shocking display of power by the enemy, to accept the unacceptable. In the Earl of Clarendon's words, Although peace can be bought at too high a price, it would suit us highly in the circumstances, and we are not in a position to decline. Peace is needed to calm people's minds, and would free the king from a burden which he is finding hard to bear. Clarendon, as we will see, would later serve as the scapegoat for the disastrous war and costly defeat, and he would live out his final years in exile. Perhaps it wasn't so much the Dutch action that stung, but the demonstrated ineffectiveness of the British response. The Dutch gave no thought to the British reply until they had slowly lumbered around the English backyard for five days. To be so close to the capital was one thing, but for no apparent retaliation or defence policy to be manufactured in the meantime was quite another. Someone had to pay for this inefficiency, this disloyalty, this shameful dishonour. The proper explanation, that the people were tired of the war, disenchanted with its conduct, and not about to risk their lives when they knew no money existed to pay them, was not regarded as a satisfactory explanation. After pulling back from the claustrophobic surroundings of the English nooks and crannies, the Dutch prowled in the mouth of the Thames for another week before sailing home. The point conclusively and irreversibly made. Since early May 1667, it had been Breda, chosen for its lack of affinity towards either the Orange or Regent Party, which had hosted the peace negotiations of the Dutch, Danish, British and French delegates. The Medway raid spurred all sides into furious action, so that by the end of the month of June real progress had been arrived at, with most of the Dutch demands met, and by the 31st of July 1667, a true peace had been hammered out. Contrary to the expectations of Louis XIV, who had not only expected the raid to fail, but also to prolong the war, the raid was a critical ingredient of the peace. It of course created a bitter and vengeful faction in Charles's court, 
that became steadily more anti-Dutch in their phrase and actions, but for now there was nothing they could do. As Peter Gale commented, The raid on Chatham had, all of it, been to its doing. He had designed it, he had prepared it, he had executed the plan through his brother, and against the obstruction of his officers. Admiral Dorotier returned home to a hero's welcome. While the Royal Charles was broken down, its plate displayed for the public view, and eventually finding its way to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, where its stern piece and other war memorabilia remain to this day. The Treaty of Breda, which ended the Anglo-Dutch War, did not bring peace to Europe, because in late May 1667 the armies of Louis XIV had marched, with the goal of seizing the Spanish Netherlands and Franche Comte for the French crown, thereby expanding French borders and glorifying the French monarchy. Louis couldn't wait any longer, with the result being that De Witt had next to no time to rest on his laurels. With Britain pieced out, the new focus was France. The war between Britain and the Dutch had been an overall catastrophe for Britain, but for the Dutch it had also been costly. The raid on the Medway was the required high note to redeem the losses from the last war, but both belligerents had suffered in their turn. De Witt at least could claim with some justification that the military reputation of the Dutch Republic had been restored, and London could no longer point to the Netherlands as its weaker rival. The peace had granted a shift in possessions, with Suriname going to the Dutch and New Netherland finally leaving Dutch hands, soon to form part of the British 13 colonies. No indemnity was imposed, and no change in regime was forced on either side, though the war had certainly given both regimes much food for thought. Both had learned lessons, but the war left many questions unanswered. Though the rivalry remained intact, more immediate strategic concerns than their own occupied the minds of negotiators in Breda even before a final peace was hammered out. These concerns revolved around France, and its recently launched war of conquest against the Spanish Netherlands. Neither the Dutch nor the British could afford such a bounty to be captured by the resurgent Louis, and so the intrigues to contain the French king began even before the final shot between them had been fired. Diplomacy had indeed failed between them, but it was accepted. For the sake of the balance of power and their own continued interests, Britain and the Dutch Republic recognised that diplomacy remained the best hope to preserve the peace and hold back the ambitions of Louis XIV of France. De Witt had mostly trumped his Orangist rivals, preempting them with a series of political manoeuvres, like that which declared no change in William of Orange's status until the war's end, and also outlined a party of removing the young Prince of Orange from any British influences. In August 1667, while the Dutch foreign attentions were occupied by what to do over Louis XIV, the policy began by De Witt the previous year would be furthered by the Perpetual Edict. This edict declared that the position of Stadtholder was to be abolished in Holland, a startling declaration, and perhaps an indication of how high De Witt's power had reached after the success following the Medway raid. Although De Witt was certainly triumphant, just like before, he could not ignore the Orangists. This time to appease them, he inserted, alongside the perpetual edict, additional clauses. First, a field marshal would be appointed. This was Morris of Nassau, a distant relative of William, and a useful, less ambitious figure, 
loyal to the regents that DeWitt could appoint. A field marshal would satisfy the Orangists' need for a general, though was not quite the symbolic post of captain-general that those princes had once held. Second, he invited William of Orange to serve in the Council of State, where the young prince might acquire the knowledge needful to the political conduct of military campaigns and fit himself to what military services the states might decide to appoint him. The drip-feeding of the Prince of Orange to his clamouring party, in other words, would continue. What DeWitt and his peers feared above all was the prince co-opting the offices of Captain General and Stadtholder together, as the old Princes of Orange had done. This combination had been the basis of their political and military authority, so to prevent such an eventuality, the office of Stadtholder was simply done away with. DeWitt then tasked himself and his allies with persuading the other six provinces to do away with their offices of Stadtholder, so that the Princes of Orange could never acquire the kind of power that their ancestors had once enjoyed. This major play, it should be emphasised again, was only possible because of DeWitt's victory, twinned with his policy of giving a little to the Orangists and allowing the prince to return and participate in the day-to-day business of state. DeWitt was simply so powerful by now, having exposed the Orange conspiracy and blackened their names during the war with Britain, that no true opposition presented itself to the plan. Contingent upon it going ahead was the tacit acknowledgement of all involved to abolish the stadtholder position forever. Hence, perpetual edict. And this was given surprisingly quickly in The Hague. What DeWitt and his allies did not like to admit was that in one critical area of policy, they had been wrong. Louis XIV had moved to claim his inheritance in the Spanish Netherlands far sooner than anyone had expected. And this rapid invasion by French troops, and the sudden presence of foreign soldiers near the Dutch border once again, raised the question of having a capable leader to lead Dutch soldiers. To avoid any suggestion that the position of captain-general should be offered to anyone, Prince of Orange or not, DeWitt moved first, as we saw, and utilised the vague position of field marshal to fill the command void. Above all, DeWitt wanted to be sure that the land of Dutch provinces would not be caught with their pants down, and thus would not have cause to complain and think Orange thoughts once again. The war with the British was thus over, and Dutch fortunes had endured in spite of the costs. What DeWitt well understood though was that times had now changed, and at a pace almost too rapid for his diplomats to keep up with. As quickly as they had agitated against their British counterparts and launched schemes in far-flung capitals in the name of forging a coalition against London's interests, now these same statesmen sought to work in tandem. Their energies would not be focused on one another anymore, but on the French. As though emerging from a great test, only to discover the true challenge on the other side, DeWitt privately acknowledged that the greatest threat to the Dutch Republic remained in play. Louis XIV had launched his first war, and it remained to be seen if the Dutch Republic, or its newly acquired allies, would be up to the task of foiling his schemes, and whether it would be able to survive the backlash brought on by the Sun King's scorn. The war all had so expected and so feared had come to pass, and Johann de Witt could only hope that he had done all he could to outlast the diplomatic and military earthquakes which would result from it.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.